Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Hello and welcome, history friends, patrons all, to episode 6 of The Korean War. Last time, we began our examination of the negotiations between the Communist Chinese and their Soviet ideological peers. While on paper, one would assume that Stalin would be enthusiastic about the prospect of a strong Communist China emerging from the ashes of its civil war, as usual, ideology took a backseat to Stalin's strategic interests. In Stalin's mind, the best option would be a mediated peace which kept the civil war alive and Mao Zedong distracted, because in this way the Soviet Union would have a better chance of dominating Beijing and Mao would remain more dependent upon Moscow for the support he required. Yet, at the same time, Stalin was coming to realise the difficulties of keeping Mao Zedong weak. 
From late April 1949, the Communists began their campaign across the Yangtze River, in the progress demonstrating Mao's disregard for Stalin's wish to halt at that river and allow a division of China to proceed. Whatever his agents may say, it was not possible to forcibly halt the Communist advance, and the last chance for either the Soviets or the Americans to prevent a Communist China from being established evaporated like the monsoon rains. In this episode, we are introduced to another aspect of Mao's concerns. Although his regime was essentially secure and a communist China was guaranteed, for the remainder of the campaign and indeed his life, Mao was transfixed on the idea that the Americans were bound to intervene militarily on the side of Chiang Kai-shek, whose regime they had always preferred, to his own. From this perspective, the Soviet Union was a great guarantor against such American intervention, but this neither prevented diplomatic relations being established with the United States nor did it lead logically to the firm alliance between the Soviets and Chinese, which was to come into force in February 1950. In this episode, we continue this narrative then, and further our analysis of the sometimes confident, sometimes contradictory, but always fascinating Chinese diplomacy, which characterized the eventful year of 1949. Let's get into it then, as I take you to April 1949. Song of the Week this week is brought to you by When Diplomacy Fails' Facebook group. If you are one that enjoys talking to your fellow history friend about the goings-on either in When Diplomacy Fails' world, something that we've done before or something you'd like us to do in the future, or you just enjoy being surrounded by a group of like-minded history friends who won't talk about how depressing politics is today, but will instead focus on the ridiculous, the interesting, and the hilarious historical and diplomatic events from years past. This sounds good to you guys. Make sure to search for When Diplomacy Fails' Facebook group, or if you like the Facebook page, simply click Visit Group on the Facebook page and you'll be transported to the screen which requires you to, well, basically request to join this wonderful group of history friends. In fact, I would even argue that it is the greatest group of history friends this side of audio. I'm trying to make that a thing, but it's kind of difficult. I'm sure we have enough catchphrases at this stage. In any case, do check that out. I am fairly regular there, and it's a great opportunity to talk to me or talk to other people that may or may not be interested in what you have to say. In any case, When Diplomacy Fails' Facebook group is a great place to be. It's nearly 300 members strong, and we cannot wait to welcome you in. So the actual song of the week this week is a song which may or may not be familiar to most of you who have heard of the song Cotton Eye Joe. You see, Cotton Eye Joe is, in fact, a song that goes back a wee bit Originally, it was released in 1939, as far as I know, by a man named Elmo Newcomer, which in itself is a pretty cool name. And here is that version of the song from 1939. Enjoy, and we'll be back with episode 6 of the Korean War. Coffee, oh. 
The United States side has entrusted some people to request the establishment of diplomatic relations on our side. The British side is doing its best to do business with us. We may consider the issue of establishing relations with the United States and Britain, provided they cut off relations with the nationalist regime. This was the message handed by Mao Zedong to his officials, as the communist forces encountered western embassies once in the territory owned by Chiang Kai-shek's republican regime, which was also known as the Kuomintang. Mao followed up that statement made on the 28th of April, 1949, with another made on the 30th of April, saying that the Communist Party of China would be willing to consider the establishment of diplomatic relations with foreign countries based on equality, mutual benefit, mutual respect for sovereignty and territorial integrity, and, first of all, of no help being given to the Kuomintang reactionaries. What are we to make of these statements? Well, in the first place, Mao's insistence on the West abandoning all deals with Chiang Kai-shek's regime was a precursor to modern-day relations between the People's Republic of China and the Republic of China on Taiwan. If you weren't aware, in order to maintain full diplomatic and trade ties with Beijing, complete with all the benefits this entails, one must first refuse to recognise the legitimacy of the Taiwan government. As recently as 2008, both Taiwan and Beijing claimed to be the sole government of the Chinese people, with the inference being that each one considered the other illegitimate, and it was only from that date that Taiwan's policies became more nuanced. Now, we're not here to analyse relations between Taiwan and China, but it is worth alluding to the fact that the modern iterations of Asian state powers were established at this pivotal moment in history, and thus the Korean War itself must be seen in the context of the Chinese Civil War. Certainly, as we'll see, Mao Zedong did not cease to consider Chiang Kai-shek's regime from October 1949 simply because the People's Republic of China had been declared. In future episodes examining the American angle with regard to Chinese diplomacy, we'll see how hard it was for Washington to unilaterally abandon Chiang Kai-shek. A large China lobby existed in the United States, which argued fervently for greater aid and practical assistance to be given to the Republicans. And it was from these calls and from this lobby that Mao sourced his own concerns. Only by cutting off relations and critically the provision of aid to the Republicans could the West hope to normalise relations, then with the Communists. The message was simple. Now that it was clear which way the wind was blowing, surely it made sense to ally with the winning side before it was too late to let bygones be bygones and the Chinese markets were lost forever to a regime with a grudge against you for trading and abetting its enemies. If you thought all this background detail would only vaguely help us pave the way towards the Korean War, then an event in March 1949 will be of special interest to us. It was then that Kim Il-sung, the North Korean dictator and communist leader, travelled to Moscow and, after some additional issues, began to discuss the need to attack the southern Korean regime. At this point, Stalin was too distracted by affairs in China to offer his proper support, and he insisted that Kim should wait. While he pledged Moscow's support for its Korean satellite in the event that the South attacked, he would not approve plans for an invasion of South Korea. At least, not yet. This hesitation on Stalin's part was absolutely not matched by Mao Zedong, who jumped at the opportunity to aid Kim's regime, sending several Korean units, who had originally been loaned by Stalin, back into the peninsula for the sake of Kim's plans. Why did Mao Zedong do this in April 1949? Well, the reason is found in Mao's strategic thinking. 
You see, if Kim Il-sung attacked the South, then this would type American forces who came to defend Syngman Rhee's regime, reducing then some of the pressure that Mao felt on his own regime from Washington, and reducing the likelihood that the Americans would help Chiang Kai-shek. Justified or not, we must accept that Mao did fear an American intervention in aid of Chiang Kai-shek, and rather than just rely on the good graces of the Americans to stay out of this struggle, he approved a massive escalation of the situation in Korea on the grounds that this would distract Washington, secure his regime, and if the Americans did not aid Rhee's south, then so more the better, a unified communist Korea would be established. Saying all this, though, we should put a pin in Mao's Korean policy here, because even though the situation in March 1949 was very different to that of November 1950, Mao's motives for getting involved in both cases read quite similarly. The only difference between the support of Kim's surprise attack in March 1949 and the overwhelming waves of Chinese soldiers that Mao sent against Douglas MacArthur in November 1950 was that... In the latter case, Mao's fears seem to have been justified by the constant push of the UN forces ever onwards towards the Chinese border. With the Yalu River in sight of MacArthur's advanced divisions, Mao acted as he did to prevent the establishment of a West-leaning regime right on his doorstep, which would undermine Chinese security and also, crucially, provide Chiang Kai-shek's exiled regime with the means to find their way back into the mainland. Mao Zedong couldn't know for sure whether Douglas MacArthur's invasion of the north of Korea was an act to rid the peninsula of Kim's belligerent regime, or whether it was the first step in a series of moves to undermine and discredit the Chinese Communist Party before the heavier blows were subsequently landed. Mao's suspicions in November 1950 read remarkably similar to those in March 1949, and at the centre of such concerns was the unfinished and uncontained war with the Republicans. So long as this struggle remained an open wound, Western action could infect it at any time. Paradoxically, the American decision to move their troops out of South Korea in 1949 also spooked Mao, and he hoped that by granting support to Kim Il-sung's regime, the Americans would be forced to stay. And these soldiers that were exiting South Korea then couldn't be used in any scheme to reclaim the initiative in China on Chiang Kai-shek's behalf. If Mao seems overly paranoid about the prospect of American invasions, then we must consider the experiences that Mao had actually lived through, not merely of Western imperialism and consistent involvement with China, but how long and how dominating the struggle between the Republicans and Communists had been. Since 1927, Mao had been fighting to establish the Communist Party, and he was immensely sensitive to any notions of hesitation on the part of the Americans to accept or recognise his regime. Bear in mind as well that from 1945, it was Chiang Kai-shek's regime rather than his own that enjoyed a seat on the UN Security Council. And Mao couldn't have helped but feel like he had somehow not been expected to win or that other people had not wanted him to win. The real question was, if the West was not necessarily rooting for his Communist Party, just how far were they willing to go to bring about the outcome that they did desire? Because Mao Zedong could never really answer this question with the utmost certainty, he could never rely on America unreservedly, and this fundamental problem explains his trepidation and insecurity where diplomacy with the United States was concerned. However, in the aftermath of his approval of Kim's moves, Mao could face a bigger problem. The independence of Mao's policy line and his pursuit of a strategy which differed from Stalin's placed him in the potential camp of Titoists. If he was not careful, Mao ran the risk of alienating his only ally in the region, and it was to avoid such an outcome that 
Mao took a significant step towards the Soviet Union. In summer 1949, Mao approved the journey of the number two man in the Chinese Communist Party, Liu Xiaokui, to meet with the Soviets in Moscow. For the first time in over a decade, high-level Sino-Soviet talks on a face-to-face basis were about to take place in the Soviet capital. Much like the previous talks with Anastash Mikoyan, Mao aimed at getting across his major concerns and ambitions for Sino-Soviet relations, while also instructing Liu to tread carefully when it came to the question of Soviet primacy. Mao had prepared the way in advance of Liu's trip to Moscow by making it apparent that he would lean to one side, in other words, favour the Soviet Union, and also by charging some members of an American embassy with espionage, as if to signal to Stalin that Sino-American relations were by no means warm. Liu arrived with a team of other Chinese diplomats on the 10th of July 1949, and would remain in Moscow until the 14th of August. During that time, Sino-Soviet negotiations emphasised the fact that communist victory was now inevitable in the civil war. Even if the Americans intervened, they could only delay the revolution, but they could not stop it. Chiang Kai-shek's regime was doomed, Mao instructed Liu to say, which of course was a far more confident stance than Mao himself actually adhered to in private. In addition, Liu confirmed Stalin's suspicions. Not only did Mao want Soviet recognition of his regime to renegotiate the 1945 treaty and to bring an end to Moscow's relations with the Chinese Republicans, but Mao also wanted to see Communist China enter into the common form, that communist forum dominated by the Soviet Union and populated by mostly Eastern European satellites. The next day, Stalin was actually present to respond to Liu's proposals, and he gave an important reply to the Chinese request to join the common form. Stalin claimed that world revolution was different in Europe, in the East and in Asia, and thus there was no need for the Chinese to join this institution, focus instead on spreading revolution in Asia, Stalin seemed to suggest, rather than joining the revolution already underway in Europe. While he would not state it outright, the message was clear. Stalin didn't want the Chinese to be in a position to interfere with his domination over European states. Considering the advance of communism and the likes of Vietnam, Cambodia and Laos, Stalin's advice to aid the spread of communism in Asia seemed particularly significant. In reality, though, the pieces were already being moved into place for those revolts. The Chinese delegate, Liu Xiaokui, wished to see the Soviet Union recognise the communist Chinese state before any other power did, for its symbolic significance if nothing else. However, Liu made it clear that this would not prevent the communists from talking with the British or Americans, particularly if the carrots of ignoring Chiang Kai-shek and unilaterally recognising the communists were offered. In a veiled reference to the despised 1945 treaty with the Soviet Union, Liu claimed that all agreements made with the Republican regime would be reviewed on a case-by-case basis, and that any unfavourable treaties would necessarily be terminated. Before Stalin could jump into this issue, though, Liu deployed a strategic concession to demonstrate his bargaining power. China would approve of an independent Mongolia, which in practice meant a Mongolia freed from the Chinese orbit and dominated utterly by the Soviet Union. Stalin was perfectly capable of presenting himself as an apologetic presence if it was necessary. Making much noise about the success of the communists in the last few years, Stalin apologised for being a hindrance on the communist progress. This was in reference to his attempts to forge ahead with some kind of mediated peace in the beginning of 1949, and to bring about a divided China as per his strategic interests. 
The apology must have been refreshing to Liu, especially since it was well known by this point that Stalin had first undermined Mao's regime in this way, and that he had then blamed these intentions on the Americans. Liu was gracious, vehemently denied any need for Stalin to apologise, and basically let Stalin off the hook. Stalin then lavished praise upon the vision and progress of Mao's regime, and confirmed it would be his pleasure to extend recognition to the communists as soon as their state was legitimately established. Mao Zedong, Stalin said, could come to Moscow immediately after this was done. With the goodwill of the Chinese delegation stoked, Stalin then moved into more difficult territory. He told Liu not to worry about recognition from the Western powers or of their perceptions of the communists' part in general, because what really mattered was the international spread and consolidation of communism, not the easing of Western sensibilities. Stalin then responded to the earlier Chinese concession of an independent Mongolia by providing his own, the release of the border region of Xinjiang into Mao's custody, but not before making it very clear that the United States and Britain were promoting ethnic unrest as a pretext for expanding their presence there. As Stalin knew full well, this had been Soviet policy in the port of Xinjiang and several other strategically important portions of Chinese land. Once again, Stalin was blaming the West for policies he was already adopting himself. Liu wouldn't have been fooled, since it was also well known in Mao's circle that the Soviets had stirred up ethnic tensions in that border region to make it easier to destabilize, occupy, and eventually annex into the Soviet Union. Stalin followed up with this message by urging the People's Liberation Army of the Communist Party to step up their efforts, and he even had the nerve to promise material aid to bring about the liberation of Chinese western regions. Regions where, surprise surprise, the Soviets had been instrumental in occupying from 1945. But Stalin, of course, had an answer for this as well. Returning to the question of the 1945 treaty, which Stalin knew full well that Mao despised, Stalin explained that he had signed the treaty with the Republicans in 1945 because the Soviet Union had been committed to the Yalta Agreement, and thus, sorry guys, but Stalin had no choice. The likes of Manchuria and Port Arthur were occupied, Stalin explained, to protect them from the Republicans, from Chiang Kai-shek, and his American backers, and the Japanese. Stalin would happily release these lands back into the Chinese Communist custody, but not until the threat to them from the Japanese and from Chiang Kai-shek were dealt with. Stalin was well aware that the Americans were struggling to wrest a definite peace treaty from the Japanese, as the occupation had proved to be both a blessing and a curse for the United States. Stalin's diplomatic somersaults are something to behold, for sure. He was claiming that he couldn't release important Chinese land back to the communists until the civil war ended, the same civil war which he had attempted to leave unfinished only a few months before. From this, it is unlikely that Mao had any illusions about Stalin's ambitions. The Soviet leader almost certainly had no intentions in the first place of returning these lands, and only now, like a kid with his hand in the cookie jar, did Stalin meekly claim that he was holding on to these lands, onto these cookies, for their own safety. The argument was weak at best, but Stalin appreciated that in the atmosphere of high-level diplomacy, sometimes weak arguments were better than strong ones, as any strong lines of policy could well rankle or offend one's partners. Even if Mao didn't believe Stalin's reasoning, he would never actively challenge it, at least not in public, and the symbolic act of handing the land back would still be heavily charged with signs of goodwill when it did take place, if indeed it did take place. For these reasons, while Stalin appears to have been by far the weaker player with the more ridiculous hands, in actual fact his policy was not as weak as it may have appeared. 
At the end of the day, as Liu and the delegation well knew, Stalin's diplomatic explanations could be wafer thin, but so long as the Red Army was around, no genuine challenges to such explanations would follow. Might, as Stalin had already grasped, makes right. A significant display of resistance did follow from some of Stalin's responses, though. He was unable to hide his apprehension to Liu when the issue of Taiwan came up. Liu requested the liberation of Taiwan from Republican forces, since the island was a stronghold of Chiang Kai-shek's even before the total evacuation there in December 1949, and the communist capture of the island would effectively remove the Republicans as a threat. Stalin refused to take part in such a scheme, though, reasoning that if he did, the United States would find defence in the explicit Soviet intervention in the Civil War, and they could grant greater military support to Chang's regime in this situation. There was a danger that if the Soviets acted militarily, Stalin said, the United States would be forced out of public pressures and the strategic interests to act in the Republicans' interests, thus leading to an internationalisation of the Chinese civil struggle. Stalin did agree to hand the matter over to the Politburo, which was essentially a death sentence for any plans in need of some urgent decisions. By placing the request in the slow cooker, effectively, Stalin could hope that by the time the dish was ready, Liu would have forgotten all about it or moved on to something else. Yet, in both Liu and Mao Zedong's case, the danger posed by Taiwan ensured that the issue never went away. What was more, when the Republicans had finally withdrawn to the island in December 1949, the situation would become still more urgent, and Mao would then be forced, for the sake of his own leverage, to launch some ill-fated invasions of the islands that surrounded Taiwan in a bid to demonstrate his supremacy. Taiwan, it seems, was only beginning to enter into the lexicon of communist troubles, but it was to remain there for the next few decades, at least. In addition to the question of the Civil War, Mao was eager for the Soviets to share with him another of their considerable tools, the nuclear program which was well underway. In fact, it was on the 10th of July 1949, the same day that Liu arrived in Moscow, that the Soviets detonated their first atomic bomb. Thanks to their information network, Mao was already aware of this test, a whole month before Washington would even find out the truth. Liu requested a tour of the Soviet atomic facilities, but Stalin wasn't evidently willing to share with his ideological ally such a great step just yet, and instead showed one of the earliest Soviet documentaries on the test. The Soviet Union, boasted Stalin, is sufficiently strong now to not be afraid of the nuclear blackmail of the United States. For the next two weeks, Stalin was occupied with other business, and would not meet with Liu again until the 27th of July. In that interim period, Stalin instructed his officials to find a way to get Liu to agree to the new Soviet status quo in Asia. Specifically, he wanted the Chinese approval of his Manchurian occupation. This process was made a bit easier thanks to the inclinations of some of the Chinese delegation led by Liu. One in particular, the rabidly pro-Soviet and native of Manchuria, Gao Gang, brought up the idea of Manchurian separation from China, as well as the increase of Soviet troops to Port Arthur and Soviet ships to patrol the coast outside Tsingtao. The Soviet members in the meeting clapped, while Gao Gang's outraged peers looked on. Perhaps detecting the supremely awkward atmosphere, Stalin attempted to playfully remark on Gao's enthusiasm, but the damage to Gao's reputation had been irreparably done. In the aftermath of Stalin's death, Gao and several other officials would be killed during a purge undertaken by Mao, and Gao Gang would be charged with having illicit relations with foreign countries. 
Attempting perhaps to lighten the mood and signal a concession had been made, Stalin brought up the Taiwan issue, again reiterating his arguments against an invasion, but insisting that the Soviet Union would still side with the communists in China. Liu dropped the request, and he replaced it with another which he knew that Stalin would be more willing to grant, and which had been the reason why the Taiwan issue was brought up in the first place. All too aware of the importance of appearances, this was one of the many rehearsed elements of the negotiations, and there were smiles all round as Liu proposed that Soviet help in modernising the Chinese naval, air and ground forces would more than suffice, and Stalin noted his enthusiastic support for such a venture. The officials present clapped with far more confidence this time round. A total of 96 Soviet advisers would actually follow Liu home to Mao to accelerate this process, demonstrating Stalin's genuine intentions to bring Chinese capabilities into line with Western standards. Commitments were made to modernise and aid the Chinese in the creation of their new state structure, governmental institutions, legal systems and, of primary importance, their intelligence-gathering activities. Stalin had signalled that while he would not countenance an assault on Taiwan now, the improvements made to the Chinese military in time would land the Chinese in a better position to invade. When this occurred, Stalin claimed, Beijing would be able to rely on Soviet help. Stalin had thus said yes to the Taiwan invasion, but no for the moment. In Mao's mind though, this traditional Stalinist policy of delaying was not acceptable. By seizing Taiwan it could be ensured that the continued southern advance of the People's Liberation Army would force Chiang Kai-shek's capitulation, whereas any lack of clarity over the issue of Taiwan would turn that island into a bastion of republican defiance and keep the civil war alive for far longer. This, of course, was what the strategically inclined Stalin wanted, what Mao Zedong dreaded, and what actually happened in the end. To facilitate the process of invading Taiwan, Mao ordered the capture of two smaller islands within the striking distance of Taiwan, called Quinoy and Dengbu. If these islands were seized, then airfields could be laid down, a base of operations established, and a springboard towards the conquering of Taiwan would be set in place. On the other hand, since an amphibious landing on Taiwan would already be fraught with risk, if the People's Liberation Army failed to seize these islands, then not only would the Republicans know of the Communist strategy, but they would also reinforce the island itself and make them harder to seize in the future. By August 1949, Chiang Kai-shek had not yet moved the Republic's institutions to Taiwan, but the implications for defending one's regime on an island appealed to those Republicans who saw the difficulty in holding such a wide front against the unstoppable communist onslaught. Mao's plans to attack Kumoi and Dengbu were fraught with a measure of risk, aggravated by the fact that the communists possessed few aeroplanes to speak of and the republicans had air supremacy. Having been used to seeing the force of his advances and the zeal of his soldiery pave the way to victory rather than superior technology, Mao underrated the impact which such aspects of warfare could have on the battle. On top of his other considerations, Mao was also racing against the clock. If he dallied when it came to the question of the two smaller islands, then the Republicans could reinforce them before his troops landed. What was more, since Mao planned to meet Stalin in a few months, it was imperative that he possessed some kind of leverage in the negotiations, and the possession of these islands was believed to be just the ticket. Perhaps taking for granted that the morale of the enemy was low, Mao anticipated that a firm strike against the small islands would punch a further crippling hole in the Republican capacity to resist, and the whole regime may well surrender to Mao early, without even the further need for operations. 
This was certainly the best outcome, but Mao was also eager to act when he learned of the waning support the United States held for Chiang Kai-shek. Contrary to Mao's estimations earlier in the year, it seemed apparent that in Washington, there was no longer a lobby that believed that Chiang Kai-shek was a horse worth backing, and the United States was instead looking to ingratiate itself upon the communists. This compelled Mao to act because it meant that the United States would not be likely to intervene in the event of an invasion of Taiwan. Having lost their American backers, the Republicans would also be even more likely to throw in the towel. Again, though, all such considerations were trumped by Mao's pursuit of leverage, and he had, as we'll see, oversimplified the issue of the pro-Republican Chinese lobby in America. But he had been aware of Liu's shortcomings when attempting to persuade the Soviets to aid in an invasion of Taiwan in the summer. This was because Mao had no leverage. The invasion plan of Taiwan was sketchy, success was not guaranteed, and the means for the Soviets to provide help was far from clear. If Mao could seize the two islands, if he could only do that, not only would the communist military prowess be further bolstered in the area, but Mao could also point out that all Stalin would have to do would be to uphold his end of the bargain by providing some necessary planes and landing craft for the Chinese as they planned the final phase, the invasion of Taiwan. What a shame it was for Mao Zedong then that the two military efforts to seize the tiny islands represented two of his most disastrous military defeats. Over the course of the 24th of October to the 3rd of November 1949, the People's Liberation Army invaded first Kumoi and then Dengbu, respectively. After initially meeting with success, the overbearing air superiority and the entrenched defences of the Republicans spelled doom on both islands for Mao's forces. The total defeat of Mao's plans may have been as surprising as they were problematic. For months since the invasion across the Yangtze River had been launched, Mao had known only success. Now, as he and his Politburo gathered to discuss their next move in the days that followed, it was apparent that Mao's planned visit to Moscow would be met with much less success. Mao possessed neither leverage nor a simple strategy for seizing Taiwan back from the Republicans. Worse than that, he had given Chiang Kai-shek's beleaguered regime a symbolic victory, which they were now able to use to gain a lot of political credit, from especially in the United States lobby, where the Republican lobby were greatly emboldened and the Republic's plight was again emphasised in a public forum. Mao had demonstrated to Stalin the extent to which he would be forced to rely on the technology and forces which the Soviet Union could give. Appreciating that the invasions had been launched without proper air support, Mao was now keenly aware of how in need of any such support any future operations in Taiwan would be, as were the Soviets. Now they would likely demand a higher price for their technology and aid to be given to the People's Liberation Army, and by his defeat, Mao had also demonstrated that he was unquestionably the junior military partner, a status which the overwhelming People's Liberation Army victories in the mainland campaign had at least called into question, if only in the minds of the Chinese communists themselves. What price was Stalin likely to ask in return for this support? Manchuria, as Mao anticipated, would be the bargaining chip that the Soviets would go for, and Mao was no longer confident that he would be in a position to refuse it to them when he travelled to meet Stalin in Moscow. Next time we'll resume our coverage of Sino-Soviet talks as Mao Zedong travels to Moscow to meet with Joseph Stalin. It was a highly significant meeting and it paved the way not merely for Sino-Soviet relations to come, but also, in large measure, for the Korean War. Until we tackle these great developments, though, I want to say a huge thanks for listening. My name is Zach, and I'll be seeing you all soon.
Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan, crusted chicken, or garlic, butter, shrimp, scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program.